World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to America's Veteran Stories with Ken Munson. I am thrilled to have in studio with me today a friend. That is Ralph Whitlock, World War II veteran. Ralph, it's great to have you. Good to be here, Ken. You know, this show precipitated from a trip that I took with four D-Day veterans that went back to Normandy in 2016 for the D-Day celebrations and returned back to the States realizing we need to capture these stories. And so I've had the honor of interviewing and what we're going to do with America's Veteran Stories is we are going to start to expand to uh, talk with veterans, Korea War, Vietnam, uh, the other conflicts, as well as peacetime uh, servicemen and women. They're all serving their country. You bet. So let's talk about you, though, Ralph Whitlock. Where did you grow up? Well, I was uh, living in southern Illinois, and um, I was on a farm, and uh, when World War II started... I didn't even hear about it until the next day. Uh, it started on Sunday, as you know, and on Monday, actually the attack was on Sunday, and on Monday I walked into my classroom, a little one-room school, no, a little uh, high school of about 45 students, and uh, they people were standing around and that was very unusual they were you know kids are there's always something going on and uh they said we're all going to war I said, you got to be kidding <laughs> didn't you hear about pearl harbor i said what's pearl harbor <laughs> well i soon found out how old were you then i was uh going on 16 when uh, i was about 15 and a half uh when that started and uh, I was in, I enlisted in, uh, when I was 17, and 17 was a big, big year for me. I had some life-changing events at 17. First was I came to faith in Christ as my Savior, laid a spiritual foundation for my life that has proved to be the best thing I ever did. And then I met a girl by the name of Marilyn, and... Uh, uh, after the war, we married, and we were married for 67 years, and uh, I lost her about six years ago. And the last uh, life-changing event, of course, was that I went in the Navy. Oh, my gosh. And I was just 17. How did you get into the Navy when you were 17? Well, they were taking 17 to 50 during World War II. At that time. Yeah. What, oh, year, yeah. what year was that that you went into the Nin Navy? Well, I went in in 1943. Okay. As you know, uh, the war started just at the end of 41. Right. And uh, so I went in in 43 and was assigned to a destroyer escort. Well, just a and quick question. How did a kid, a farm kid from Illinois, decide to go into the Navy? You know, um, this may sound unpatriotic, <laughs> but I had slogged through the mud on a farm plenty, and uh, I had gotten a hold of some literature, plus I had seen a, the movie, you know, some movies about the Navy, and I thought, that's where I want to be, because 
I had gotten literature from the Navy, you know, you get a hot shower and hot meals and all that kind of stuff, you know. I like the idea of the Navy. They never told me about seasickness, though. <laughs> Forgot about that one, huh? Yeah. So you joined the Navy, and uh, where did you go for boot camp? Say it again. Where did you go for boot camp? Uh, I went to Great Lakes, Illinois for boot camp. And then after boot camp, um, that was about 12 weeks, and uh, I went down to Norfolk, Virginia. And when I got down to Norfolk, Virginia, um, I, I was uh, went, went through some training with the group, the boot camp group that I was with, went through extensive training, and then had a leave. And uh, when I got back from my leave, I missed my train by a half hour. So I came in seven hours late, and they threw me in what they called the pal shack, prisoner at large. And uh, it was worse than what they call hell week. It was exercise. (laughs) It was calisthenics such as I had never gone through before. But by the time I was in there 10 days, three days waiting for sentence, and then seven days, seven hours, seven days. And by the time I got out of there... I was in the best shape of my life. I'm sure. And um, so I missed going on the USS Missouri. Most of the guys I was with went out with boot camp. They went to the Missouri, and I went with three of us who were on that same train, got assigned to a destroyer escort. Now, a destroyer escort was a ship that was a, a small, about the two-thirds size of a full destroyer. And the uh, British had proved them on the Lend-Lease program. The U.S. had given them 30 of them. And it turned their convoy war around. Instead of just sitting there being sitting ducks and getting sunk, they were now sinking the subs. And so our our, uh, nation started building them, especially after Pearl Harbor, and they built about 500 of them. They were assembled all over the country. I mean, there were parts all over the country and assembled on the coasts. And uh, so I was assigned to the DE-305, the USS Halloran. DE-305, the USS yes, Halloran. D- and how many men on that? Uh, it was about, uh, I would say, uh, right around 200, okay. maybe a little less than 200. Okay. And uh, I don't know if I've told you the story, Kim, but it bears repeating because everywhere I go, they want to hear the story. When we left uh, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, we uh, took the southern route and we went down. It was uh, actually in February or March. And we took the southern route and went down through Atlanta and then over to uh, Dallas, you know, down through Texas and out to the West Coast. And so we would have uh, have these dining cars that would be on sometimes, and sometimes they didn't have them. Well, in the first uh, leg of it, we our first stop was in Atlanta, Georgia. We got off the ship and marched down Peachtree uh, Street, and uh, we got to a big hotel. We broke ranks and went up, and there were four elevators. Why I remember that, I don't know, but... The dining room was on the 10th floor. We got up to the 10th floor, and as I got off the elevator in a large, beautiful dining room, I heard an argument going on. 
Well, I'm sorry, sir. We do not serve Negras in this establishment. Well, you may be sorry, but I'm more sorry. And, and I'm sorry that you are sorry, but you are not going to turn away our black sailors. We don't allow any Negras to eat in this establishment. And that boat's mate who had been a veteran of the Sicily campaign and the he had been reassigned to our ship. He was a veteran Navy guy, and he turned to him, and he had his fingers right in his face. And he said, I want to tell you something, sir. We're a crew. We've trained together. We sleep together. We work together. And, you know, we're going to go out on the same ship, and we all may die together, and nobody's going to tell us that we can't eat together. Well, I'm sorry, sir, but we do not serve Negras in this establishment. So he turned to a little ensign that was with him, a young fellow, and he they had a little confab. He turned to us, and he said, gentlemen, they don't want to serve our black sailors. And um, so anybody that wants to eat here, Raise your hand. Not one hand went up. And uh, we were a crew. (laughs) We had to go out and chase our own supper that night. But that was okay. But we stood together. And that's an incident I'll never forget. Wow. That is something else, Ralph Whitlock. Okay, well, you guys are all together. What happens? You get to your ship, the O'Halloran. Well, we got out to the West Coast, and they sent us out to the Pacific. Uh, of course, we had a shakedown cruise where we all got seasick. All the fresh guys got seasick. And for people and that don't know, that, tell them about the shakedown cruise. What is the that The shakedown exactly? cruise really is uh, two things. It shakes down the ship. They do everything possible to bring out any weakness in the ship. And uh, they set the compasses and they do all kinds of things. And we fire all the guns, and we drop the depth charges. We do everything. And then we not only test the equipment, but we test the men because you're breaking in green people. And that went on for about three weeks. And then we got um, reassigned. We uh, went out to Pearl Harbor. And out to Pearl Harbor probably took us a week because we were zigzagging and going slow. And after a few days, I suddenly realized that I had, was not seasick. And I went through typhoons, a couple of typhoons, and some really heavy weather. And that ship rolled and bucked. It was a rough rider. Uh, the columnist at that, at that time, a war correspondent by the name of Ernie Pyle, uh-huh. wrote on one. And I have a column he wrote. And he said, the men who serve on these... DEs deserve flight pay and submarine pay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and Ernie Pyle, I just learned, a war correspondent, that he was killed during World War II. And you know, it just so happens, Kim, that we were at, uh, uh, at uh, Iwo Jima, let's see, we had passed Iwo, we were at Okinawa when he died, and we were patrolling off of Iwo the island that he was killed on. We could see it from where we were mm-hmm. patrolling. And we heard that he had been killed, shot by a sniper. But he always liked to be in in the battle. He always was with the men. Yeah. Wow. 
Interesting. Very interesting on that. So, okay. So you uh, completed the shakedown cruise, but you mentioned something about seasickness. So you did. You were seasick at oh, the my. beginning. Were most of the guys? Uh, most of the guys were. We uh, called that the feeding the fish mm-hmm. <laughs> excursion. <laughs> A lot of us fed the fish. And then one day it was just over? And one day it just ended. I realized I hadn't been seasick. And that's what they call getting your sea legs. Aha. And when that happens, you no longer are seasick. Yeah, and okay. I went through storms and everything. And Tell us never... about a typhoon. What, what was that like? Well, we were in a typhoon one big one with the fleet and uh, we rolled 70 degrees you know 90 is on your side yeah. 70 we rolled 70 several times 45s up here 70s way down here and it's practically on its side but it, you wonder if it's coming back it shudders and shakes and rolls back it was a rough three days in that typhoon did you lose any men in the typhoon we did not. There were some other ships that did. In fact, um, I'm not sure if it was the typhoon we were in or another one. I've always thought it was the one we were in, but to this day, I can't be sure. I can't be positive. But the Monaghan, the Hall, and the Spence were three destroyers that actually had been um, reworked, and they were a little top-heavy, and they went over on their sides and Almost 600 men died in those storms. They managed to rescue about 30 of them. And how they did it, I don't know. Wow. Gosh, and when you are going through a typhoon, I mean, I assume you have to do work on deck. Do you tie yourselves down? Or well, do you- uh, during rough weather, you don't do any work on deck. Okay, so you're not on because, deck. Because uh, I could tell you it'd be a long story, but it's, I, I do it when I give my high school presentations. But... Uh, the doors you spin the doors open and you you wait until it's uh going back the other way and hang on and then you spin it tight and you go out through and we we had to go i lived aft in the rear part of the ship and we had to go to the forward part and then come back in and it was we always got wet i'm sure you it did it was a rough ride okay well typhoons weren't the only thing that you went through ralph whitlock uh, you have some battle stars as well, don't you? Yes. Well, our first engagement was in the landing at um, Peleu. Okay. The landing at Peleu. Okay, so I'll ask you that again. So. Okay. So, Ralph, uh, where did you get your first battle star? Our first battle star was in the landing at Peleu. So tell me about that. And Peleu was uh, an island chain. Uh, the P- Palau, I believe Palau was the large island chain. And Peleu was a, the island, and we uh, circled this supply ships uh, to keep them protected from submarines and from uh, aircraft. Okay. So how far out were you then from the island? Well, we were we were a little ways out. We could hear at night. We could hear and see the flash, okay. but we weren't in close on that one. And we were probably a, I would say maybe a half a mile or. Okay. Out the boats would come out and and get supplies off the ships and take them in. You know, it was a constant um, convoys going mm-hmm. of small boats going taking stuff in. So we had to protect those ships. And then uh, the second one that we got in was uh, 
lasted about eight months, really, because it was the campaign to liberate the Philippines. Okay. And we were off the uh, Leyte uh, area, and uh, after it was secured, we actually pulled the Liberty in Leyte. And, uh, but, uh, that, and what, what that, does that mean? And w- what we did, mostly, we were an escort ship. We were not a, a heavy destroyer where we go in and bombard. We were the ones who escorted and protected the supply ships or the transports, as the case may be. And uh, so we we uh, would take the uh, we, we would just you know protect, uh, circle the ships and a whole bunch of just DEs and destroyers. We usually had full size destroyers and DEs, and we would protect them. When you say pulled liberty, what does that mean exactly? Pull liberty means that you could go ashore and have fun. Okay. <laughs> and the... basically, at uh, I remember at Leyte, we went ashore, and uh, fighting was still going on up inward, inland, but they allowed us to go in, and uh, some of the people we called the natives, they had all kind of junk that they were selling, and we bought some of those as souvenirs. And, and get, just to get on dry land for a little bit is kind of a treat. Okay. And so in the Battle of the Philippines, isn't that where MacArthur had said that I will return? Yes. So that was... Yes. And actually, we had um, uh, some experiences uh, in in relation to that. We had an area that we called uh, Ulithi, and it was an island chain where we... Uh, it was an anchorage. And one time we came in from a run with some tankers, and we would go in there, and then they'd assign maybe a new bunch of ships to us, and we'd take them out and and escort. So we were escorting tankers for a while and refueling the fleet. And one time we got in there, and, uh, and in the morning we woke up to general quarters, which means battle stations, and as we came topside, we saw the smoke going straight up, a heavy column of smoke, and one of our tankers had been sunk. Uh, Midget submarines got in under the nets, uh, and somehow they got in under the nets, and uh, uh, they sank that that, uh, ship. So the destroyers and destroyer escorts got underway. The heavy ships, like the battleships and carriers and cruisers, they were still anchored, but we got underway and we had a contact um, and we dropped charges. We were about 30 feet away from a, a heavy cruiser. I think it was the Savannah. And, and we dropped our charges and uh, uh, two men came up. And so I was back there in the deck force and we, my battle station was the what we called a K-gun which was a, a, a gun that would fire a, a depth charge out a distance away from the ship. Well, we couldn't use that, so I had nothing to do but watch them roll, roll them off the back end. We were in about 30 feet of water, and these two fellows came up, and so there was one guy who was out probably 20, 20 25 feet from us or so, and we're only a, about as high as the ceiling, about eight feet off the water. 
So we're standing there watching, and and uh, the guy yelled to him, "Hey!" And he threw the life ring to him, and it landed right by him. And he could have picked it up and and uh, been rescued, but he looked up at us, and then he grabbed the top of his head and pulled himself under the water and drowned. And it was hard to believe that you were seeing that happen, drowned himself. And the other fellow was getting close to the ship. You know what, Ralph, let's stop right there. Let's go to break, and let's leave that as a cliffhanger on what happened to the other guy. So this is uh, Kim Munson. This is America's Veteran Stories, and I'm talking with World War II and Korean War veteran Ralph Whitlock. We'll be right Right. back. But you said there was another guy. The other guy was getting pretty close to the ship. And we uh, had a long pole, and we were going to try to reach him. And um, the ship was drifting, so they, they backed the ship up. And as they backed it up, it caused a swirl, and he got sucked into that swirl, and that's the last we saw of oh. him. But, uh, uh, you know, those events are kind of few and far between. And uh, one event, we actually had three very narrow escapes that we got out of. And I'll tell you about one of them it has to do with the Battle of the Philippines. We were escorting this particular time. We were escorting a group of carriers, small carriers. We called them jeep carriers. They were not the big heavy fleet carriers. Mm-hmm. But they, um, uh, we had a uh, some kind of I don't know if we had, I think it was that there was a, a couple ships came in with a tanker and uh, refueled the the aircraft carriers and then uh, those two ships stayed with our group and we on another destroy a destroyer we headed out in the dark of night past the island of the Japanese held island of Yap. And at the dark of the night, and heading back to Ulithi. And when we got there the next morning, we heard that our group had run into the main element of the Japanese fleet. There were some 26 destroyers that they ran into, and the battleship Yamato, and uh, some cruisers. And one of our DEs, the particular one designed to carry torpedo tubes, uh, actually sank a Japanese cruiser, heavy cruiser, big ship. And they managed to turn around, even though they were decimated, they managed to turn that around. And that was called, the uh, that group was called Taffy 3, and it was the last tin can battle of the World War II, the last surface engagement. They managed to turn those ships around. And uh, some real heroics there. A lot of men died in that. But we missed that battle just by taking that tanker okay. back. And when you say last tin can battle, what, what does that mean exactly, uh, Ralph? Tin, uh, oh, I'm sorry. A tin can uh, was either a DE or a DD, a destroyer, full-size destroyer. or a, We were what they called the tin can Navy. Okay. Because they called us tin cans because... We didn't have any armament. Our our metal was maybe a quarter inch thick. Uh-huh. Uh, we're a battleship, you know. It's very thick. Wow. And so 
these destroyers and these uh, escort destroyers end up running into the main part of the Japanese Navy. Yeah. Wow. And you- so when we finished uh, uh, with the Philippines group, um, and that's quite a story about the Philippines, the tactics that were used there. But uh, when we finished, we got uh, reassigned and we headed toward Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And uh, we were in Pearl Harbor about a week and uh, had liberty, you know, and it was a nice break. And uh, one day we uh, we <laughs> headed out early. Along in the day, we headed out, and uh, we were we had a practice invasion. We were now with a gr- a whole group of of um, transports, and we were carrying the fourth and fifth Marine Division to to a little place called Iwo Jima. We didn't have a clue where we were going. We stopped and uh, had a practice landing on one of the Hawaiian Islands, and then we took off. And the next stop was uh, uh, in the area there, uh, in the Carolinas. We picked up uh, more ships and headed toward Iwo Jima. And the night before, the old man got on the horn and he he announced to us, our old man, he was 35. <laughs> uh, we called him the old man because most of us were teenagers and and uh, I think about 40% of the ship was teenagers. I was 18. Huh. And uh, anyway, he told us that uh, we were going to take this little island that uh, uh, two miles wide by four miles long, and they expected to have it secured in 72 hours. And as you know from history, mm-hmm. it took 36 days. We, we stayed in the area of... Uh, Iwo Jima for about three weeks patrolling, and we hauled out wounded Marines uh, tied up along a boat, uh, a landing craft alongside one time, and took out a load of wounded Marines to a hospital ship, that kind of thing. And then we we patrolled around the island uh, to protect from any uh, planes uh, and uh, so forth, or any submarines. And then uh, we got reassigned and went down to a place 400 miles north of Austra- northeast of Australia uh, in the New Hebrides called Esparito Santos. And there we picked up the 27th Division, the Army Division, and we headed north up to Okinawa. We had no clue where we were going. But we used to listen to Tokyo Rose, who was a, an American, Jew, uh, American Japanese person who had been uh, cooperating and collaborating with the Japanese. I guess she was stuck there during the war, and she collaborated. But anyway, we loved to hear her. And I remember one evening especially we were listening, and she'd play Glenn Miller, and she'd play all the latest hits. And... Uh, and she'd say to us, you know, guys, you remember the song? You you danced to this with your girl. Well, it's too bad she's dancing with somebody else now and so forth. And, uh, and then she said something that really caught our attention. She said, the 27th Division 
is on its way to Okinawa. It's too bad they'll never make it. Oh and my so gosh. they had their intelligence. They knew where we were going. And that's how you figured out where you were going. Yeah, we, that's how we found out where we were going <laughs> from wow. Tokyo Rose. And uh, those, we, it takes a long time, you know, to go from down near Australia all the way up to the southernmost Japanese island. But we came in there on Easter Sunday in April, April 2nd, and we had a landing. And the landing, we we watched while the uh, boats were going in, and they took the Army Division in, and they apparently had no um, no opposition until they got farther in. But the that's where we first saw our kamikazes. They that first day they were just loaded the sky, hundreds of them. They were all over, and we were there until June twenty first. And uh, one time we were, you know, it's every night, every night they're coming, every day. They sank in a period of less than 90 days. The Japanese, by the kamikaze attacks, sank 30, at least 30 ships. And Bill O'Reilly said 41. I I don't know where you got that number. But they damaged over 200. And we had shot down uh, two incoming kamikazes that were going to crash into us. We shot them down. One came in toward the rear of our ship, and uh, as he came in, we shot him, and his wing came off, and he landed in the water. And uh, we saw we saw these uh, ships that had been hit, and it was just horrible. Sometimes they would take a ship that had been so badly damaged that was still floating, a burned-out hulk, and just drop the anchor and let it sit there hoping they'd hit it again. But they hit over 200, damaged over 200 of our uh, destroyers and destroyer escorts at uh, at Okinawa because we had what we called the concentric rings of uh, uh, the picket line. The picket line was to protect against any incoming force while they were taking the islands while they were taking the island of Okinawa. And one night, one night, uh, we, it was real dark. I was down below because I was on an ammunition party for one of the guns, and uh, uh, it was my turn to be down below. And uh, we had our earphones on, listening to everything, and the guys were saying, there's a plane, a plane out here, and boy, it's lit. He dropped a flare on us, and it's lit up here uh, like daylight out here. And uh, and then all of a sudden, we were going full speed trying to evade that aircraft. It was a torpedo plane, and uh, all of a sudden the ship shook. There was a huge explosion. We heard the bang, and then we heard we the ship was just rolling and shaking. So they called around to all the departments, and they said, anybody, uh, any department suffering damage, all stations report. So I said, Department C-203, all no damage. And they, each guy would report. And uh, we determined a few days later that the uh, the 
explosion from that acoustical torpedo that missed us had actually damaged our rudders. And so they took us, the ship wasn't handling right. And you know, a ship handles differently every day. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the ship wasn't ha- steering right. So they took it and p- took us out of the battle area there and put us in a uh, uh, landing cr- uh, dock. Uh, uh, anyway, it was a, a like a landing craft. It was a um, uh, dry dock a floating dry dock, and the back end would go down, and they'd open the door, and then we'd drive the DE in there, and then they'd close the door and pump us up. And they, while we were there, they added more uh, guns to the rails. And, uh, and then we went back. A few days later, we went back on the line, and on June 21st, 1945, at 11.30 at night, it was our second call to GQ. We had been at GQ General Quarters. We had been at GQ uh, uh, at 8.30 for about a half hour and went, went back and hit the sack. And then uh, at, before 11.30, uh, we were, were called back to, back to battle stations. And at 11.30, a twin-engine, I believe it was a VAL bomber, twin-engine bomber, circled us and uh he came in real low on the water just above the water line and you could hear the guys yelling on the phone he's coming in he's coming in he's coming in and uh and all of a sudden you heard all the guns going like crazy and bang and boom and and a big boom and and uh to make a long story short, our gunners got him, and they got him with some of those new guns that had been oh, installed. And so we thank God for the fact that we had that damage from that torpedo that missed us. And uh, uh, we owed our very lives to that to that uh, new new guns that were put on. And so those new guns. Uh, were the main ones they believed, but the fellows that were on them, uh, there were we had three guys killed that night, and uh, one guy died the next morning. He was one of the gunners on those guns, and uh, we had uh, 23 wounded, and some of them very badly. I was in uh, the forward compartment, and the compartment I was in had uh four holes that came through about six inches across in diameter. And one of them slammed about two feet to my left and hit a battle lantern that was behind me and sent it up in smoke. And uh, we had 304 holes. The blood was all over the deck. And we had, uh, as I say, 23 wounded. Six guys never came back to the ship from from uh, the hospital ship. And uh, so we came in and we buried uh, three of our guys, actually four of them there on the little uh, island of Karamaretto and uh, temporary burying place for them. And, uh, and then after that, we were relieved and sent down. I guess they figured we'd had enough <laughs> and they sent us down to the Philippines. They repaired us 
filled up 304 holes and uh, sent us down to the Philippines. And we were in the Philippines working with some minesweepers to clear out an area when we got word that uh, some kind of a bomb had been dropped. And then we heard we were in there when the war ended. And when it was announced, we could hardly believe it. One of the radio men came down. He came running down from the radio shack and waving his arms, yelling, hey, guys, the war is over. The war is over. The Japanese are surrendering. They're surrendering. And nobody would believe him. They said, get out of here. Get out of here, you know. And then finally the old man got on the horn and he said, we have some good news. The Japanese have agreed to surrender. Well, that night we had a big party. All the ships, uh, the the <laughs> ships were firing their their uh, uh, star gazer, star starlight, and all their very pistols and and making a lot of noise. And later we talked to some of the soldiers that were still fight, fighting uh, inland, and they had uh, there were there were still some snipers back in there, and they said they thought we were under attack. <laughs> But that's how the war ended. Oh, my gosh. Ralph Whitlock. So those four battle stars, it was Peleliu, right? Um, Pelu. Pelu. Okay. Philippine Liberation. Okay. Lady. And, and Iwo Jima. And, and Iwo Jima. And, and Okinawa. Okinawa. Wow. We're going to go to break. Before we do that, though, you sing. And Well, you know, <laughs> we not everything on a ship is that kind of action. There are times when it's so boring, you standing watch and we uh had at that particular time there was a movie out uh with james cagney and he was portraying the life of george m cohan and uh there was a song in there uh, about the harrigan you know a guy his name was h-a-r-r-i-g-a-n so our gun crew and i was fortunate that i had guys with i stood watch on a gun crew that was we were what we called the watch gun crew and uh, hours and hours of boredom. And then we would sing, especially on Moonlit Night, we'd sing, Shine on, shine on, harvest moon up in the sky. Or we'd sing, I want a gal just like the gal that married dear old dad. She was a girl and the only girl that daddy ever had. A real live loving girl with hearts so true. One who loved nobody else but you. And I learned to harmonize. Uh-huh. I didn't know much about music, but we That's fiddled what you around. That's learned, huh? And, we, and so we made up a song out of that song. And it goes like this. <clears throat> H-A-L-L-O-R-A-N spells Halloran. She's a fighting little D in the Navy, plunging through the sea so blue and wavy. H-A-L-L-O-R-A-N, you see. We will fight, we will serve for the pride of the Halloran. Halloran, D-E. Oh, on that note, let's go to break. When we come back, we have one more segment with the Ralph Whitlock, and this is America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Stay tuned. Song is just amazing. How old are you? I'm 93. And you still study with the voice coach. Yeah, I do. Uh, you still sing. I, I sing in part Yeah, I've been out. Yeah. 
inspire me. You, you're the oldest guy there, so. Okay, well, let's, uh, you, you have four battle stars from World War II, but you have a fifth battle star. Yes, uh, and the story behind that fifth battle star is uh, that I was out of the Navy for a long time, and at that time, uh, y- you probably remember that the uh, the story of, <clears throat> of uh, Berlin being taken by the Russians and their section, actually, they, they were... Um, each each of them were assigned a, a portion of it, and the Russians got real nasty about Berlin, and so we had the we had that all this stuff with the uh, the blockade, and we had that stuff about the air, airplanes, and there was constant threat of war. That's all they talked about, and the last thing I heard when I got my discharge up at Great Lakes was. Don't get too comfortable, guys, because you're going to be the first ones called back if we have any trouble with Russia, because we were decimating our forces. And I had that in the back of my mind. Well, uh, a friend of mine was in the reserve, Navy Reserve, and so I thought, well, if I go back, I, I want to go back with a better rate than I had. And I was working as an electrician in civilian life, and... Uh, so anyway, I all of a sudden, just very suddenly, we were in war with the Korean War, and I got called back, and uh, I I had a little boy, he was eighteen months old, he's now <laughs> seventy, <laughs> and uh, uh, anyway, I got back, and immediate as soon as I got up to Great Lakes. Uh, and signed in. They said, you you are now a member of the USS Floyd B. Parks. They immediately sent me. And so I stayed in Great Lakes just a very few days, maybe three or four days. And they put me on a train, sent me out to the West Coast, and I was now aboard the USS Floyd B. Parks, um, named after one of the pilots that was in the Battle of Midway and killed. And uh, we called her the Fighting Floyd B. Uh, so um, we were in, I joined it in San Francisco. We went down to San Diego for a while. My wife came down there, and then she had to go back, and we headed toward Korea pretty quick. After about three weeks, we headed to Korea. And so I spent, oh, probably the next eight months in Korea, and I never was in South Korea. We were always above the uh, uh, 40, 39th parallel, is it? And I was in a big place called Wonsan, big, huge harbor there. And uh, we ran with the carriers for one month, and then we got in there, and we were bombarding. And what we would do is uh, that Wonsan is a big rail hub and transportation hub. And so we would do what they called interdictory fire. We would just keep firing uh, day and night at them. And then every now and then, the guns from Kalmakak would open up on us. And you'd see the them splashing out in the water, and we're zigzagging, trying to miss them. And uh, um, we would call in the Air Force, the Navy, and uh, regular 
and they'd go in and they'd set that whole peninsula on fire with napalm, and it would just be smoking. And then a couple hours later, doors were open, the guns would come out, and boom, boom, boom. So I actually got fired at more in the Korean War than we did in in the uh, in four World War II, really? as far as uh-huh. guns were concerned. Uh-huh. Uh, we didn't have any airplane attacks at all in Korea. There were none. Mm-hmm. But we we went there, and I, I did two tours. I, I uh, went back for about uh, three months the last time. But... Uh, so that's how I got my battle star in there. And we would, every now and then, we'd go out every four days and, and reload re, uh, because we used a lot of ammunition. We'd go out between the straits and always, when we went, we zigzagged and went full speed. We'd load up and come back in and, and bombard, just bombard night and day. And uh, so I was in that for... Uh, Eight months the first time and about three months the second time. Okay. Okay. Well, and then thank I got you. discharged. I got released because my my uh, time was up. <laughs> I think I think five battle stars. Your time probably yeah. <laughs> probably was. Ralph, this interview is going really really quickly, and there's a story that you shared with me once that took my breath away. A story about when you were a child. Yeah. When I was about nine years old, it was a Memorial Day parade in the little town of LaGrange, Illinois. And uh, at that time, I was living in an orphan's home. That's before my mother remarried and I went to live on a farm. And I was uh, standing watching the the uh, parade go by, and there was a big open touring car there. And uh, in that open touring car, uh, there, there were on the side of it had big letters. It said G A R, and uh, these three men in blue uniforms with these Buster Brown hats, hats like they use, like our Rangers use out in the forest today. And uh, of course, they're waving. And I turned to somebody and I said, "What is the G A R?" Oh, they said that's the Grand Army of the Republic. Those are Civil War soldiers. And uh, and I said, wow, that's, that's amazing, <laughs> you know. And my grandfather, I think I told you privately that my grandfather, not my great-grandfather, but my grandfather was with the 49th uh, Illinois Volunteers in the Civil War, and he was in from 1861 to 1865. Wow. And he, uh, I learned later that he ran with Carlton's Raiders, and he had quite a war experience. Did he ever tell you any stories about no, that? No, I was, uh, my dad, he was already gone by the time I was born, and my, my dad was his only child, as far as I know, and he died when I was three months old. I was his 13th child. Oh, and, my God. Uh, okay. You know, Ralph, when the first time you told me that story, I'm sitting across, you know, the the room here from you and I'm looking into your eyes and I'm yeah. thinking I am looking in the eyes mm-hmm. of someone who actually saw Civil War veterans yeah. alive. I it just takes my breath away. And as I remember, I did I think I did see one in a school program one time. 
I was very small. Yeah. But he he told some stories, and I remember seeing World War One veterans who came and told us their stories. Sure, but but Civil War. But Civil War was <laughs> different. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So now you said that you you visit schools, so you visit schools and tell students I do about today, your story. Yeah, yeah. I, I have gone to several okay. several high schools to tell my story. Okay. Um, what would you typically want to say to students today? Well, I basically, for one thing, uh, I always tell the kids this, and I got, this is not original with me, that you know that when a Japanese soldier, uh, a Japanese recruit raised his right hand, he pledged to support and defend or to defend Hirohito, the emperor. And when a Russian soldier, when he went in and was recruited, you know, went in, he raised his hand and pledged allegiance to Stalin. But when an American goes in, he says this, he or she says that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. There's quite a difference. There's quite a difference. We have a document that we support. And why do we support a document? That document supports us. That support that document supports our country. And so we weren't just fighting for the country. Ultimately we were, but we were pledged and I still do this to this day. They pledge to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And the reason why that is so important, and as, as you mentioned, Ralph, how this is so different is America was founded, as you mentioned, on this piece of parchment. And on that That's parchment, right. Right. it put forward this idea yeah. that what, what, what uh, this country was going to do was yeah. to protect these inalienable rights from God that right. each person has of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And the big difference is that it's not given by man, it's given by God. That's right, that's right. Okay, we're yeah. getting close to the end yeah. of the show. A couple of things. Uh, as we were coming in, you told me a story. You were back in Washington, D.C. Yes. So share uh, that, please. Yes. Last year, and I've been to Washington twice, but uh, last year I had the privilege to go with a group called uh, uh, Vets Roll, and they're out of... Uh, 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 Wisconsin, and uh, so I went to Wisconsin, and, and we got on buses, and 10 buses, and there were, there were, I think, well, there was, uh, there, there was, by the time we got there, we had around 200 uh, people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with nurses and, and uh, so forth. Well, anyway, we got into Washington, D.C., and most of the way we had police or motorcycle escorts. Nice. We zipped through Washington like you wouldn't believe. But we got on there uh, and got up to the to the uh, Washington Mall. We were right there up in front of the where the Lincoln Memorial is. And we were standing out there, and they got these seats, and we saw the Marine Band out there, and they were just doing a rehearsal. Well, all of a sudden they stopped, and then we all sat up, and I went down and I sat in a seat, and uh, all of a sudden I heard a voice say, hey, 
Ralph Whitlock, where's Ralph Whitlock? And I said, here. And I thought, well, are they asking me to sing? Are they going to be a strange place to have me sing? So I got over and and I got next to this uh, Marine colonel who's the commandant of the uh, Marine barracks in Washington, D.C. And he said, uh, uh, I understand you have five battle stars. from World War II. I said, well, four from World War II and one from Korea. And he said, well, you're along with this little nurse over here who's in a wheelchair, kind of bent over, little gray-haired gal. And he said she was a combat nurse out in the, in the war zone and in World War II. And uh, he said, you're the guest of honor. You're the male guest of honor. And he said, when... Now, he's, he, he said when uh, they do the flag ceremony, well, first of all, they'll bring the flag up, and then we'll all salute, and they play the national... No, they, they will salute the flag, and then he said he will post the flag. And then he said, I want you, as soon as he posts the flag and starts to raise the flag again... He said, I want you to call out, charge the command. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did. I did it as loud as I could. Boy, I'll tell you, the minute that thing, the minute that happened, the band started playing, the drill team started marching, and I'm standing there saluting, and I'm saying, Lord, you're amazing. You're just absolutely amazing, the things you allow me to experience. Is amazing. <laughs> that was wonderful. And so we got back to the to the hotel that night, and they asked me to sing "God Bless America." Well, with that, <laughs> Ralph Whitlock, how about <clears throat> would you share "God Bless America" with our listeners? While the storm clouds gather far across the sea. Let us swear allegiance to a land that's free. Let us all be grateful for a land so fair as we raise our voices in a solemn prayer. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her Through the night with a light from above From the mountains to the prairies To the oceans white with foam God bless America My home, sweet home, God bless America, my home, sweet home. Wow, that is a 93-year-old World War II and Korean War veteran, Ralph Whitlock, I love you, Ralph Whitlock. That was just awesome. Ralph Whitlock, God Bless America. What is the story behind that? Uh, as America was coming into a dangerous area during um, 
just before World War II started, uh, there was a singer by the name of Kate Smith who was looking for a, a patriotic song. And um, she had a friend by the name of Irving Berlin. And Irving Berlin had been in World War I, and he had written several songs for, for uh, World War I. But at the times were come the as it was toning down, he had a song that uh, a very patriotic song, and instead of releasing it at that time, he just put it in an old dust an old trunk, and he put that in the old trunk and it laid there for many years, and as things were heating up, and things were getting very uncertain overseas, Kate Smith wanted to have a patriotic song and I think the year was 1939 if I'm not mistaken and she said to her friend Irving Berlin could you write me a patriotic song oh yeah sure so came to his mind I have one I've already written it it's in the chest so he got that old song out of that chest and it's the song God Bless America while the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear allegiance to a land that's free. Let us all be grateful for a land so fair as we raise our voices in a solemn prayer. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above. From the mountains to the prairies, to the oceans wide with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, my home, Sweet home. Wow, that was 93-year-old World War II and Korean War veteran Ralph Whitlock. Love you, Ralph Whitlock. Thank you so much for being with me. This is Kim Munson with America's Veteran Stories. God bless you and God bless America. Join us next time. 